Hello and welcome to our podcast, Geeks, We Are Your Fathers. We're three geek dads and we're here to talk about anything and everything geeky. In this episode, we'll be looking at hacks to help whilst working from home, interviewing one of the team who restored the original Apollo guidance computer and discussing whether Disney Plus is better than Netflix. Hello and welcome to episode five of Geeks, We Are Your Fathers. I'm Robbie. I'm Dave. And I'm Pete. In this week's episode, we're taking a look at some of the hacks that you can use while working from home. With more and more of us finding ourselves in this situation at the moment, we thought it would be helpful to share some of our favourites. And I know this week I've had no end of problems with slow internet speed. By any chance, do either of you have anything that can help with this? Well, it just so happens, Robbie, I do. So I guess uh, for our international uh, listeners, I guess this might not be quite so relevant, but here in the UK, I guess there are kind of two ways to get your your internet broadband, and that is either through a cable service, uh, through fibre optics, through someone like Virgin, or the other way to get it is through the traditional BT line um, on the telephone line. So actually, I have, in our house, we've got what we call uh, fibre to cabinet and copper to door. So actually, I don't have fibre, but what we do is we have a cabinet at the end of the lane here, which uh, is delivered to by fibre optics to the cabinet, and then the last kind of few hundred yards is delivered by the regular copper phone line. So there's a few things you can do. So first of all, it's all about where you put your router. So if you plug your router straight into the master socket from the first point, then you should um, have the best signal you can get that's coming in. So that should help the speed there. Secondly is placement. Ideally, you want to put your router in the middle of the home. Now, I don't know whether, Robbie, you've got a router with little um, antennas sticking out the back of it, or is it all just one sort of box yeah, with nothing so I, on it? I moved into a new build, so it was already there for me in terms of they've tucked it away in a cupboard, which never seems to help. And not quite centrally in the house. Um, I have got a couple of boosters in, one from a Sky, um, and then right. a couple around the house plugged in. But um, yeah, still doesn't always reach every corner of the house. So those of you who've got like a broadband router that's got a traditional kind of aerial poking at the back or like a big rubber ducky type thing. Uh, I don't know whether you guys have heard of, first of all, of the Pringle can hack, which is quite an old one. Have you, have no. you heard of that? No. Well, so, so, I mean, so it's all about the way antennas work. Sorry. So an antenna basically radiates. If you've got an antenna that sticks up in the air like a, 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 like a, like a rubber ducky type, that will radiate the signal in a 360 degree angle. Okay. So if you've got your router stuck at the edge of your home and you're losing half of it out, outside or to your neighbours. So what the Pringle can hack effect was all about was you you basically cut it open and inside is like a silver reflective yeah. kind of space, yeah. right? So you would then stick that Pringle can over the top of your antenna uh, and you'd cut it open, you'd open it and you'd fan it out. So you basically you were radiating and you were pushing that signal out towards the home. So you weren't reflecting it behind, but more out, right? So that was that kind of one little hack. Um, so that's one kind of really kind of hacky way to do stuff. But if you can get that route in the middle of your home, that will help, and especially if it's connected to the master box. If it's on a slave line, which is basically like an extension, you know, you might lose a couple of megabit potentially, but it depends on how far you're obviously taking that bit of cable and how good that quality of the connection is. Another thing you can do, and this is a little bit more dangerous if you're not too sort of DIY savvy, but um, on a phone line, there's there's quite a few cables, and generally you only need two of them. One's the the connection line, and one's the ring line. So on an old kind of analog phone, which that that is the 
what carries the power to ring the phone, right? So most modern phones, you don't need that for deck phones. In fact, I don't think anybody uses, well, not many people use deck phones these days. Everyone uses their mobiles, don't they? But you can take that ring line off and that actually can increase the speed a little bit for you. It's a bit hit and miss, but it, it does kind of work. Um, but we had these sort of problems in our house. We live in a very old house. We've got an extension. My office is actually full of insulation which is silver backed so it's kind of a bit of a faraday cage in my office so what i've actually gone for recently is, is is a couple of solutions so i've actually got our broadband hub and we've got sky broadband that's sitting in my uh, cupboard behind me but what i've done is i use um two things first of all i've got uh, wi-fi boosters a bit like you have robbie but they come in three different flavors right so you get the ones that are just boosters and they take the signal and they amplify it mm -hmm. you get ones which create additional mobile uh, sort of hot spots if you like so they create an additional wireless network on your house now they can be okay but it just basically means you've got more than one wireless network on your house so when you're going between rooms you've got to generally switch between those um, Wi-Fi networks because your laptop, um, especially laptops, they'll hang on to the absolute last minute to that weakest signal that's come in the main um, router. And then, then they'll flick over and connect to your other hotspot in the, in the back of the house or upstairs. So um, the best thing you need to do there is just keep changing it manually. But there is a way around that. Um, I've just invested in what they call mesh Wi-Fi. Now, mesh Wi-Fi, I've got the Google one, that basically takes the signal and all of the nodes, so all of the little boxes that you stick around the house, I've got three, they basically create what they call a mesh network. So they rebroadcast the same SSID, if you like, the same network. So you can use the same network ID throughout the whole of the house without having to change between networks. And actually, I've got, it's 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. So you've got those two radio technologies. Um, now, interference is a big thing. Could, do you know anything else in the home that runs on the same frequency as 2.4 gig Wi-Fi? No, but I'm going to guess some really obvious stuff. <laughs> I'll give you a clue. You cook with it. Well, it's not going to be the oven. Let's go microwave. <laughs> microwave. So microwaves, like I've got a magnetron on board. They're like they're like radars. They they actually work on a 2.4 gigahertz frequency. So microwaves actually can interfere with your signal too. So you shouldn't put your router right next to your microwave, especially if it's just a standard 2.4 gig one, which is probably a bit of an older one if you've got it now. So things like that can really interfere with your with your Wi-Fi as well. There's so much stuff that works on 2.4 gigahertz. It's a really common band. Is the range bigger on a 2.4 than a 5? Because I obviously, usually I tend to find that I can attach quite easily to a 2.4 in most rooms, whereas sometimes I can't even discover the 5. <laughs> so it, it's about bandwidth and yes, it's about signal integrity. So Sometimes 2.4 gigs work, works better than five. It just depends on how your home is kind of set up and where your router is and that kind of stuff. But really, five gigahertz is the, is the newer technology. It allows you to have faster connection speeds. And um, I'm, in terms of penetration of the signal, I, I think that potentially maybe the waves are shorter. I'd need to check. You know, I probably should check. But um, it generally five gigahertz is better because you've got that better bandwidth and, and it isn't less always compatible as well. either is it with a lot of the no devices some devices don't work with five gigahertz so most modern routers if they're five gigahertz will have a fallback to 2.4 right so although i've got a problem in my house because i've got some old cameras that work 2.4 gig and for some reason they won't see the 2.4 gig version <laughs> of my wi-fi right so look so that's mesh networking um 
And the other one to look at, which is really cool, and I use quite a lot, is have you have you guys heard of Powerline Networking? Yeah, so actually, I've I've got a Powerline Network that I used to use in my old house when there was particular problems trying to get the internet into one of my daughter's rooms. But I'm now starting to consider it for getting wired Ethernet out into my garage because I've got my workshop out there and it'd be great if I can get internet access whereas it's at the end of my garden and I can't pick anything up from Wi-Fi. I can right. piggyback on my neighbours, but I'm sure they wouldn't be very pleased with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing with Wi-Fi, right? It's really short distance. So, you know, you are looking at, you know, 10, 20 metres for, I guess, optimal. I mean, you could, with a with a really good setup, maybe go 50 metres if you're very, very lucky, but it's unlikely. These things are designed for short range, right? I mean, when you put up your, uh, your phone and you look to see what wireless networks around you might pick up your neighbors but you don't go more than sort of you know beyond two or three doors down right if you're depending on kind of where you live but but yeah the good thing about the power line networking is is that you can either use it um actually to deliver a wi-fi hotspot so a new wi-fi network or they generally have ethernet inputs as well so in my office here i've got my playstation and i've got um, my plex server and stuff I've actually got those through the power line. So I'm not using any wireless at all. So first of all, you've got no problems of interference. Uh, you're delivering the, the fastest speed possible. So actually you get different speed versions of the, of the power line networking, yeah. depending on how much money you want to spend. So you can get the sort of, you know, right up to, I think mine are, I think mine are 100 megabit. I can't remember, but you get different, different speeds, right? Um, so obviously go for as much as you can afford because that you know obviously the, the faster you can go the better it is for your for your device but it's got a much better connection integrity if you're doing it through the wired uh, part of your network so i use them all the time and they're fantastic and like you say robbie you could put them anywhere in the house on the same sockets uh, that uh, you're on so depending on where you are in the world they do sometimes struggle to jump across phases i mean mm -hmm. we're mainly single phase here in the uk so does it make much difference where you place them so it, we said before about obviously where your router is placed for your wi-fi does it make much difference if this is placed further away so as i mentioned if it was at the end of the garden would i get a slower connection than if it was the plug that happened to be next to my router yeah, so basically you, you, you need one connected to your router anyway, so it can deliver the, the broadband. So yeah, it it, just, it does depend. I've tried one down my shed and I've got an armored cable an armored cable running all the way down there and it is a bit hit and miss. But yeah, ideally the closer you are and also don't put them on extension blocks. So you need to put okay. them straight into the mains. Um, so if you've got a properly set up mains um, wiring where you've got... Um, it's all on a ring main, right? So sometimes you get socket spurs as well. So socket spurs generally okay, but generally you want to put it on the main ring name. So if you've got an extension spur that's come up as well, you should probably avoid those if you can, because you don't get quite a good signal. So yeah, generally they'll you know straight into the wall as long as it's in the same uh, property where your uh, your um, you know your electricity comes in, then you should be absolutely fine. But yeah, the closer the better generally, yeah, because cool. it's like anything, isn't it? The further run, <laughs> the further you run the less uh, performance you're going to get generally. So, yeah. But but Airbus Hacks, that's, that's, that's what, you, that's, you know, three things to do there, really. If you've got slow Wi-Fi, try and move your router to the master socket if you're on the BT. Try and put it in the center of the home. Use home plugs and mesh networking, you know, and again, that will help you. And, and five gigahertz, that will help you deliver the best Wi-Fi experience you can around the house. I'll give that a shot. Hopefully it works with the 
working from home with the, the kids around on their iPads and things as well. But <laughs> the good thing about Google Mesh, though, so the good thing about Google Mesh is that you can actually get an app with it and you can control the devices. So you can switch the kids off, you can throttle their bandwidth down, right? So that's really good. So if you are on a conference call and you need video and the kids are in the other room watching Netflix, you can actually give your device priority and then you can and you can downgrade theirs. So like actually, the in theory, there you go. So you're kind of the god, the god of the Wi-Fi. <laughs> so how to be god of the Wi-Fi? Uh, you know, yeah, get 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 a mesh network. And Amazon do one too. I think it's called the Echo or Eco. Uh, and then obviously Google have got their their mesh. But the mesh is definitely the way to go. If you can invest in Wi-Fi extensions in the home, it's a little bit more money, but mesh is definitely the way to go. Cool. And obviously for you, Dave, you. You're not really working from home as such because you always work from home. This is just normal work for you. <laughs> Have you got any tips? It, well, it's it's interesting actually. I've just been reading on LinkedIn today. There's uh, one of the editors of LinkedIn has, has posted an article that says, "Is the working from home honeymoon over?" Because obviously there's there's a whole bunch of people out in the world who, for whom this has been alien. This has been unusual. The idea of working from home is uh, it's not for everyone. Um, but yeah, I've I've been working from home one way or another for quite a long time so the, the key thing really and we're lucky I've, I've got a house that's big enough that that there's four of us is my wife and I and our two kids we're in a position where we can if we need to disappear to different corners of the house and I realize that that's a luxury that not everybody's got it's it is hard you've got the kids at home who are potentially either getting bored getting frustrated getting upset that they can't see their friends at the same time there's this kind of pressure in the background to keep them homeschooled which is it's it's a really tricky one I've been speaking to my kids uh, teachers and that they're encouraging us to get them to do stuff but it's difficult very few of us are teachers I, I've got a completely newfound respect for what teachers go through every single day yeah um, the, the fact that you know they, they keep these guys entertained for six hours at school and we've taken that for granted as parents, and now all of a sudden we're seeing what goes into it. Um, but the so the, I mean the tips for working from home for me aren't actually technology driven. That it's generally about setting your boundaries, making it clear that there are times where the kids can't come in and ask you for a drink. Uh, there are other times where yeah, it's not a problem coming for a cuddle. That's absolutely fine. Um, it's just common sense, really, as much as anything else. Um, yeah, and if you if you aren't lucky enough to have uh, a place big enough that you can escape, is is just try and separate activities just that little bit, and make sure you take some time to not do anything. That's kind of what I'd suggest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's kind of what my advice would have been as well. Is it's I've I've tended to try and and chunk my work up, so I just try and break it down. I've been using. Have you heard of the the Pomodoro method? Oh, uh, yes, yeah. So I, I use the, the tomatotimer.com website and I, I break my day down into 25 minute chunks. And I I've not off. seen that. What's that? Pom Pomodoro? So it's, it's, do you know in the in a kitchen, it's like you have an egg timer, there's a tomato version, and you spin it around and it will last for 25 <laughs> minutes. And the way it works is um... you, you set yourself a task, so something that you're working on, and you give yourself 25 minutes. So you start it off. At the end of that, you then give yourself five minute or 10 minute break and then you break everything down into those 25 minute chunks because to start with it was easy to get lost in one activity and then because you've not got yeah. people coming to you every five minutes to say um have you done this or have you done that or can you help with this 
you end up concentrating on one activity and then there's probably another three or four that you're not making yeah. any progress on. So instead I started to break it all down into those little chunks and just do a bit bit at a time. And then you start to actually oh, see cool. the progress you're making. Um, but as well, I mean, coming back to what Dave said, around the homeschooling, that's really helped with that as well. So what I tend to do is give myself a, a short spell of that this is, I'm working on this now. And then at the end of that, I can check in on what the kids are doing, making sure that they're making progress with, with the work that they're getting on with. I can sit and explain things to them and help them with things for 10 minutes and then go back yeah. into my, my second block of, of work. So it, it definitely does help to, to keep some sort of balance. Um, and I think I'd be going mad at the minute without apps like Trello, where I can keep track of my to-do lists and what I'm progressing with and what I need to do and who I need to catch up with and you know just, just keep insane with that. And, and obviously things like Microsoft Teams where you can still keep in touch with people um, and yeah. find out what's going on. But yeah, it's, I, we said it a few weeks ago, but I think we're, we're very lucky to be working from home, enforced working from home during the time of technology that we're in, because there's so much out there that can help so much. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is a real challenge. And like, you know, what thing I was thinking about the other day is, is noise cancellation technology. I remember years ago, I used to uh, do, um, just work with a company, um, I think they were in Cambridge, and they were trying to develop this kind of noise cancellation thing where you'd put sensors in the corner of each room you'd almost create this kind of box where sound couldn't escape or get in and it was basically using playing back you know the whole noise cancellation thing where it pays back yeah. the, the sound at the opposite frequency and and i'm not sure they ever got with that i should probably look up and i'm i'm, I'm sure it's still not something that's been solved because how i how i deal would that be where you could just create this this room with you know especially like i need to break it to you though pete we've we've got them already in the office at work and in the video studio they don't work oh really that's but they exactly don't work, what we do they? In. no but that's what they are so they're they're to stop you from here from being interrupted by other people talking in the other end of the office they're not great that's that plays more uh... um it plays out sound it's supposed to be like white noise but it, yeah I, i'm not overly yeah. impressed by them if i'm honest but it, yeah, yeah it just sounds like a hiss, doesn't it, all the time? Yeah. The theory, yeah. I guess it's because what you need to be able to do is predict what's going to happen. I guess if it's just like meeting people chatting. But I guess, you know, thinking about it, if you're playing a movie and you tell your noise cancellation machine that you're watching, I don't know, Avengers Age of Ultron or something, it should know. It should basically take in that soundtrack and then play the opposite. Well, I think I'm onto something here. <laughs> see, see, that's there we go. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird. I've just, I've literally, bear in mind, you know, what I do for a living is I, I write technical content for people. Yeah. I've, I've just written an article for, for a client about road noise cancellation. So this is specifically yeah. this active noise cancellation in the automotive environment. Uh, where you you put sensors the ideal is that you put the sensors as close to the source of the noise as possible which gives the processing system as much time as possible to to understand what that noise is and then play the anti-noise effectively and yeah. within a cabin of a, of a vehicle it's actually relatively easy because yeah, same as an cabin is, yeah it's relatively yeah. small um but it, it does have its limitations it turns out that from what i can read Active noise cancellation works best on lower frequencies, yeah, and it and it works best on uh, noises that that kind of are a you know a low rumble and ambient noise. So the idea of the rumble of a vehicle over the road, yeah, is is easy to do. Yeah. Whereas somebody's sitting there with a pair of drums or a set of drums and they go whack, it it's asking a lot for the technology at the moment to be able to say 
there's that spike in noise, so I've got to play the anti-noise at precisely the right Well, it has moment. to predict, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. Um, but if you've got but, a movie, you know what's coming up. Go for it, Pete. Let's stop talking about it. You can patent this, and off you go. You, you can pitch this into <laughs> all of the cinemas. Yeah, but if being being a proper geek, being a, somebody who's read lots of science fiction in the past, there's all sorts of people like Asimov in the 40s were writing books, and they were talking about privacy cones, the idea that you could be talking to somebody, they could flick a switch, and there's this effective cone of silence that means that your conversation with the person you're talking to is completely sealed off from the environment around you. So it's... <laughs> We're, it's effectively I mean some people at Asimov would come up with ideas way before they actually were invented that would be a form of noise active noise cancellation the idea is that you yeah. have a, a sensor and a speaker directly above your head and it would do exactly what we've been talking about but here's a man in the 40s and 50s writing these ideas but you know that's that's the subject for yet another podcast well Definitely. do you know what I think JK Rowling might have got an idea from that because there's the is it in a muffalato yeah um spell which basically does exactly that so it basically stops people from hearing what you're saying it's kind of like makes their ears go all funny but yeah uh, there you go so interesting good stuff but cool that sound means it's time for our special guest interview and this week dave has been chatting to mark vadil who has been responsible for restoring the original apollo guidance computer Hi everyone, I'm here talking to Mark about a project that uh, came across my radar uh, some months ago. So um, what was the idea behind the project? So I'm Mark Radiel and in, in real life I am a technology executive in Silicon Valley. I, I work in fiber optics, but in my uh, side fantasy life uh, I work with a team of uh, restorers uh, and we restored uh, old vintage electronics uh, usually, you know, rare and, and important um, uh, items. Uh, and, you know, the uh, Apollo guidance computer is probably the, the most noble hardware we, uh, we have had the, the pleasure to work on. Well, how did, how did that start? I mean, where, where, who gets the idea to find 50, 60-year-old bits of equipment and, and try and make them work? Well, well, it's a it's a fame machine, so we we had already been interested in it, um, so we, we we all knew something about it. But uh, somebody actually did contact us, uh, a young engineer called Mike Stewart, uh, you know, contacted one of us and said, "Well, you know, I have this uh, owner of a private agency." And he would like it to have been. He would like to power it up. Would you be interested? And and we, we dropped everything else we were doing, and we said, oh, of course. Well, we checked if that was real or fake. Of course. You said the word we, so I'm guessing there's a team of you who do this. So how many of you get involved? Uh, yes. Yeah, so so most of the project we take on, they're they're too big for just one person. So in this case, uh, there was uh, mostly four of us, uh, kind of full time, and, and and a couple others that helped. Mike Stewart, uh, who is the this this young engineer who who knows every uh, is is a walking encyclopedia about the AGC. I can talk more about what he did before. Uh, myself, and there's also uh, Ken Sheriff and Carl Clanch, with uh, whom I do most of the restoration. And uh, know myself, uh, Ken and Carl, we work uh, also at the Computer History Museum. So we are from the restoration team over there. Okay. So 
for those of us who haven't seen, I mean, lots of us have seen Apollo 13 or, or loads of other movies with all sorts of stuff. We might have something in mind about what the AGC actually is. Could you describe it? How big is it? How much, how much does it weigh? Where does it fit? What does it do? I think it's 70 pounds. Right. Uh, it's about one cubic foot. So, I mean, for, it's like a large printer, really. Um, big square box uh, of, of, of golden metal with a, a large connector at the front. It looks uh, you know, pretty nondescript, like a big hunch of metal. Uh, and it's hard to believe it did practically everything in, 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 in the mission and in the spaceship. By the time it, it took off, I'm guessing that we're we're talking about nearly 60 year old technology so how powerful was it what was the what was the processor speed how much memory was in this kind of thing well well so so first to know the apollo program started with the agc it was well understood having a computer that can maneuver uh, the ship in space was going to be one of the biggest hurdles and the first contract that was awarded was the contract to um, MIT for the the guidance system, uh, which included the AGC. It, it, it's both amazingly powerful and not powerful at all. <laughs> um, amazingly powerful for the time. So the, the contract was awarded in '62. The AGC Block Two that we restored it's a 1966 design. And no, the, the, the things you can, you can lift it up with one strong person, uh, which is at this time is, 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 a, is a complete feat, right? No computers yeah, totally. would, they, they would fill entire rooms. Uh, it has integrated circuits in it. In, in fact, it has the first integrated circuits that were ever used to make a computer. They had actually the first ones coming out of the factory. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. You see the the, the main engineer, Eldon Hall, uh, saying that, oh, finally, we somebody d delivered more than two. <laughs> <laughs> and they were from Fairchild. And when those guys are incredible, they delivered 30. And of course, they are the same guy that would you know, go on on this success and, and make Intel. Uh, but so it's it's incredibly advanced for the time. Uh, but it's extremely limited, um, particularly in terms of memory. It has four kilobytes of uh, core memory, uh, which is called the erasable memory, and 72 kilobytes of ROM, which is core rope. So memory is by far its limitation. In terms of speed, it's not bad. Uh, no, of course, by today's standards, it's ridiculous. But uh, it's a four megahertz clock, so it's it's uh, no, it's it's slow, but not in, in incredibly uh, incredibly slow for for the time in particular. No, that's something that you would you know that computers would uh, run at this speed, maybe still ten. 20 years later, right? Yeah, Eighties, very much so. Microprocessors. I didn't realise quite how important it is in the history of computing. If you're talking about this is the first use of integrated circuits and we're talking about, like say, clock speeds that, that wouldn't have been out of place 15, 20 years later. This is the, the, the forgotten foundation of, of modern computing, uh, of modern embedded computing. Yeah. 
I mean, th this thing is just mind-blowing. It's actually the first time that piloting a device that carried humans was entrusted to a computer. It's the first computer with ICs, the first thing that flies, <laughs> the yeah. first computer that flies, the first computer that controls something that flies, and it's nothing else than a spaceship. It's, no. <laughs> The, the, the number of firsts uh, that were done in that computer uh, were amazing. It's a computer also that recovers from crashing and that you know, saved the Apollo 11 mission. So yeah. it, basically the people wrote the book on real-time operating systems. That's still how it was done. And they were inventing all this without really knowing, right? Because they started from a complete blank sheet of paper. The, the, the more we look at it, the, the more we are amazed. And then this is the thing that really prop propel the electronic industry in the US or front of, in front of everybody else and basically created the uh, the, the, the uh, silicon industry the IC wouldn't have been developed without the Apollo program it was like 70% of the ICs in the world uh, during the uh, 60s wow. went to this one program to Apollo and it, it paid for you know, the establishment of the whole uh, IC industry and the reliability and everything. And we still live on it today, right? We, to this day, Intel is still ahead because of this program and this computer. When you were renovating this device, did you have access to the book? Did you have the book? Did you have the blueprints? Did you have the diagrams? Or were you trying to work it out without? Most of the documents are available. Uh, it, you know, some it took some real effort to get it, and we got it from the original engineers in the end. But most is very well documented. So in, in, in a sense, we sort of lucked out. We had uh, the entire schematics, uh, many reports about it. So when you run it, we get to the point where everything's working. What does what does success look like to be able to prove that it's it's working as advertised? What were you able to do with it? We um, uh, so, so first when it ran on its own memory and we ran we uh, ran the test suite on it and it passed. We we were you know, just so elated <laughs> that the thing yeah. was running. But then, okay, fine. So you have a, a computer that's hooked up to a test box that runs this test program. Uh, so pretty quickly, you want to run programs. Then, so we um, uh, started to run the original moon landing programs, and you know, that gets very complicated because the thing doesn't do. You know, it runs for a few seconds. And we were trying to, of course, simulate a moon landing, right? And then, yeah. so you 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 start the thing, and then it it tells, oh, there's something wrong. I, I cannot feel feel the ship here. Where 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 is my you know, inertial platform? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it throws a no, it throws an alarm at you. Okay, so you feed him you know, fake inertial platform signals, and then you can go to, up to ignition, and then you know the engine ignites and says, oh. There's a fault here. The engine has not ignited. I cannot feel the push. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much, uh, so we, we, we went progressively through you no know, uh, feeding it fixed signals and you no, know, we, we, we kind of hard crashed on the moon with it. <laughs> but we realized we uh, needed to replicate 
every single part of the ship, uh, which we eventually did. Uh, so we hook it up to a full emulation of the LEM. Uh, and uh, we, in the end, we were able to do moon landings with the original software, um, with the Apollo 11 software. And we even went as far as recreating the faults in the hardware mm -hmm. and having 1202s yeah. doing our descent. So we did the actual, no, Apollo 11 landing in the actual conditions. And no, when we landed, man, I had goosebumps. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, this is how, no, it couldn't be any closer to relive what it was to land. And I also realize how freaking incredible. difficult it was to lend the thing. Absolutely incredible. This this is fascinating stuff. What's the next step? Uh, you, you've done the Apollo guidance computer. What, what's next on the list? So we're not done. <laughs> so we, uh, no, we would like to, to, more than emulation, have more things working on it and run more displays. So we have uh, used it to recover a lot of the ropes so people kept the, the core uh, rope memory, which is the fixed memory. Uh, people kept them at souvenirs. So they are all over the right. place yeah. and we are trying to recover them. And then we can plug it into the machine and we can dump them. Uh, so Mark has been doing a lot of that. And then after that, we have to reconstitute the software. So we re recovered a huge amount of lost software. Uh, we never got a real disky. Uh, we had to use a replica. Uh, but we got a real screen disky, so we are trying to power that up. Uh, I have uh, acquired an Apollo gyro, so we're trying to get the gyro and, and part of the IMU working again. We really would like to recreate the 1202 correctly, uh, which is a huge amount of hardware that fails. Uh, so we're trying to do that, recreate the hardware. And finally, we're working on the other computers. Uh, those are much harder. Uh, it's the LVDC and, and the, uh, uh, the the computer that was on the Saturn V. And we hope we'll get there. And then we, we have lost access to our uh, to our AGC, uh, who is back with its owner. And, and you know, usually when we restore computers, I'm done, right? They go back. <laughs> yes. But this one I miss dearly. So we are trying to get an, another one so we can run all these experiments with more hardware replicated uh, 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 around it. And how, how many of them are lying around? I mean, there can't be that many of them. There are, there are a lot in museums, like, like the, the, the Smithsonian, they, they, they have like 15 diskies new in the box. Really? <laughs> so say, so please, can we just look at one and measure it? They wouldn't let us. Really? Uh, so there's quite a few in museums, uh, and those are basically locked out. You can't touch them. Uh, they are quite a few in uh, private hands, uh, maybe 10, something like that. One was recently sold. We actually tried to bid on it, but it exceeded our you know, combined uh, no firepower. Yeah. Um, so, and that one is a sister of ours. It's unpotted, so we could repair it. Uh, so we're That's trying to tr track it down. <laughs> I, I think we have an inkling of where it went. So if we could get our hands on that one, that would be good. Well, it sounds like that this this clearly is 
is desperately important to the to the history of computing, uh, and it and it's desperately important to the history of Apollo, and to the space program as a whole. Um, so all I can say is I wish you the best of luck to find another one of these things that you can actually hook up to your equipment and make it work again. And uh, let's hope one day the Smithsonian's going to decide. Actually, it doesn't matter if these guys have a quick look. So um, yeah, best of luck. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. That was absolutely fascinating. Uh, stuff about computing that I had no idea about. Uh, thanks very much. And I will share the videos and all the links in the show notes so that if anybody wants to, to learn a little bit more about this program, please go and take a look. And thank you very much, Mark. You're welcome. Thank you. Now we've come to In Pursuit of Dispute, the section where we agree to disagree about any given subject. So today's topic is if you could have just one streaming service, what would it be and why? I'm, I'm guessing, Pete, you're probably the right person to ask for this one. <laughs> Do you know what? There are so many of them aren't there right now. So I think I've probably got all of them. Well, not all of them, but all the, all the main ones. So we've got Disney Plus recently, had Netflix probably not long after it first started few years ago and Amazon Prime we've got by default uh, mainly because we've got Amazon deliveries coming probably every other day <laughs> so, yeah, so we've got that by default and I always forget we've got Amazon Prime I must admit I think the kids watch it a little bit but um, but I'm actually going to talk about one called Plex I don't know if you've heard of Plex no so uh, so Plex actually is a streaming service but it's also a way to organize your own media so I actually, over the last sort of two or three years, I have taken all of my physical media. So that includes my Blu-rays, my DVDs, my CDs, and I've literally digitized them all. And I've created my own streaming service, which I call Woodflix, after myself, right? <laughs> and what's great about it is that you literally, it, you, you, when you load up Plex, I've, I've built a server onto a PC now that runs Windows 10. And it's about the size of, um, I don't know, uh, it's about 10 centimetres square. And um, when you load up Plex and you basically put your media files into it, it literally sorts all of your movies, your music, your TV shows, and it categorises them all. It pulls all the images from the web. It does trailers, descriptions. You can favourite stuff. Um, and if you've got TV shows, it puts them into seasons. And I actually can search any device in my house or in my pocket if you like by using the plex app and i can give friends access to it if I want, which i don't because it means they're obviously taking and they're using my bandwidth because they're uploading from my box obviously to, to their home but we've gone away on holiday in places and i watch stuff on the train from my little box here um, but they also deliver uh, for free movies and podcasts so actually funny enough uh, dave you'll remember this robbie's far too young there was a film called convoy um, which you oh, might remember yeah. from the, oh, yes, from the, the smoking the bandit time. So from the fact it was the seventies, actually. Um, Christopherson, I remember, wasn't it? That's it, absolutely. So they actually serve movies like that for free. So there's a whole bunch of movies that you can get for free as well. They're generally rubbish ones or old ones and stuff. But so you've got a combination of those movies that they share for free and podcasts and some music. But ultimately, Plex is great for organising your own media. So, so yeah, for me. I'm going to go with Plex because I think it's just absolutely amazing. And it's free. 
apps and it's free to use. I've got the premium edition because it allows you to do a few more things, but it's like, I think I paid 70 pounds for a lifetime membership. Uh, but uh, I'm going to do a video at some point, which I'll share um, on the channel, um, but to show people how to, to rip their own movies and their Blu-rays and DVDs. And obviously that everyone I think, generally has to do CDs, but to basically digitize all of your, your, your content. And then I've just given away all of my physical content to charity shops or friends. And I've got a whole load of space left now underneath the TV and in cupboards. And I can view that content anywhere in the world. So I'm going to go with Plex. So you would take that over watching all of the, the new series that come out on Netflix or Disney Plus? Because surely then you're only ever as good as the, the physical products that you ever had in the first place. Yeah, if I could only choose one, though, because I, I would definitely choose my immediate. The problem I've got with Netflix, or I love Netflix, don't get me wrong, is but a lot of the stuff they go in there is a little bit rubbish. I think the TV shows are generally fantastic. Some of the movies are, can be a bit questionable. They do have some good stuff in Amazon Prime annoy me because you start watching a TV series and then they decide to take it off, yeah. so you can't watch the end, right? Uh, and all the things I generally want to watch um, aren't there. They are good for renting, though. I like it the fact that if you want to rent a movie, uh, you can literally you know go on there and rent it, and then you, you own it. But the other thing is because you although you own it, you can't take that off and put that on my Plex box, right? So. Yeah. I would rather buy media or go to a charity shop and buy stuff and copy it or, or um, you know, that that for me, if I could only choose one, I think I'd rather have my own setup where I've chosen my own movies that I love. I, I, I go back to and, and some of the TV shows that I've got, like the Big Bang Theory is constantly on in a house. I own all of those Blu-rays as well and I've ripped all of those and Friends. And so there were certain go-to things that I love and I keep them. And I think for me, if I can serve them digitally anywhere, uh, and I could only have this Plex, but don't get me wrong, I do love Netflix and I do love Amazon Prime, I do love Disney Plus. I've got most of the Marvel movies, so you know, again, they could get switched off at any time on on other streaming services, but I've got them and they're always mine, they're always there. So for me, it's Plex all the way. Fair enough. What about you, Dave? Well, I I, I see entirely what Pete's saying about some of the stuff. You know, movies appear on Amazon for a period of time and then they they disappear again, which can be a little bit irritating. Um, but I, before Disney Plus came along, which is, I mean, a firm favourite in our house now. My, my wife is a Disney fan. The kids love it. We've only had it now, what, a month and a half in the UK. And I think my little boy's got complete value. He's been watching all of the animated Star Wars stuff. And so if we, if we take Amazon, sorry, if we take Disney Plus out of the equation, because that's got to be top of the list, I think I prefer Amazon. And I prefer Amazon because I like the original stuff that they've been creating. So whether it's Man in the High Castle or whether it's, um, there's a new thing called uh, Tales from the Loop, which is, that's another thing I could get all geeky about. It's a, it's a, a Scandinavian artist, I think his name is Steven Stalberg, I think it is, I have to forgive me if I get that wrong, who created these wonderful art books a few years ago. He's just an artist and he's uh, and he, he's been creating art from his imagination the idea of growing up in sweden in the 80s in an environment where there's there's robots and scientific research and it's, it's a slightly weird kind of alternative universe take and amazon have started uh, a series of tales from the loop which makes me very happy my wife looks at me like i'm weird but hey um but it but they've done so sounds much. awesome it's it's incredible it's it's a bit kind of it's like a Scandi drama, except it's actually yeah. set in the US. But it's it's a bit dark and brooding. But the the imagery about it, these these robots, the 
the idea the background behind it is just absolutely fascinating so i've got a i've got a link with it but but that's just one of them that with all these things that amazon have come out with uh, whether it's comedy programs or TV programs, or their own movies, um, it, I think it's got to be Amazon for me, just because they're I, I like their content. I think yeah. as well with the good thing with Amazon that I find is that it, the value for money is there. I think when you look at it, and it's not just the you're paying to watch the series and the movies, but you're getting the next day delivery. It's all mm. part of one of the same payment. But I'm a bit like you, Pete. Sometimes I forget that I've got it. I've, I've got Amazon yeah. Prime, but I kind of forget to look on there unless I can't find something on Netflix or Disney. And there's a, there's been a few series that I have got into, and mainly because I had Fire Sticks plugged into a few of the TVs. But since I've got Sky Q and replaced the Fire Sticks with a Sky Q box, I haven't really missed Amazon, and I haven't really looked at it too often, if I'm honest. But I, I do think it's probably the better value. And for me, what annoys me with a lot of these services is they are all very similar. And going back to, again, another point that you both raised with things being removed when you're just about to watch them, they're all so, so clever. I mean, they all work together to make sure that when something disappears from one, it's suddenly then on the next one two weeks later. Mm. And I, I did, I started the Lord of the Rings trilogy and um, because my, my partner had never seen it before. And we started off with The Hobbit and then we carried on through. And then when we got through to the Lord of the Rings films, they weren't on Netflix anymore. So then we had to try and find them on Amazon. And the first one was on there. By the time we'd watched that, the second and third had disappeared. And in sure. the end, I had to go and buy them on Sky Store to watch them. And it, it just annoyed me that I had subscriptions to Amazon, to Netflix, yeah. and, and to Sky, and to everything. And I couldn't get the film that I wanted to watch. So from mm. that perspective, I can see why Plex would be a good one for that Pete um, and I did have all of those on DVD and got rid of them years ago but yeah, yeah I mean I, I, I definitely I agree with Dave in that Disney for me is by far and away the best at the moment um, now, I, I definitely didn't think I'd be saying that a month ago because <laughs> I love Netflix Netflix is kind of the background to my life um, I, the amount of things I just have on in the background yeah. so we were talking about working from home earlier I've usually got an episode of Big Bang Theory or stranger things or something in in the background while i'm working away because it's just that familiar sound that, that is fine while i'm working in silence without without anyone else in in my home office so it's it, for me it, it was going to take some beating but i think disney plus has just smashed it out of the park i think for, especially for the kids the the amount of original content that's on there the amount of um obviously the, the classic films that are there every single disney film you could think of and then for, for us as the older geeks, having all of the, the Marvel series on there from start to finish and all the spin-off series and the same with Star Wars and the spin-off yeah. series and the animated series, it's, I, could, I could happily just sit and watch Disney, I think, for the next 20 years. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got the value. We, we've absolutely got the value out of it since it started. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember going for the free trial and fully intending to take the seven-day free trial and then cancel it. But I was watching it that much, there was no way I could cancel it. <laughs> what, five ninety nine a month, is it? Or, or yeah, it's not, I think it's not I might that bad have paid at all. a pound less than that. To be honest, when you, it's good value for money. When you take them all on their own, they are all good value for money. I think the problem is that, as we said, they, they all take certain things at certain times. So if you want to watch everything, you need to have them all. So while it seems that in comparison to what you would have paid for Sky Movies, 
it's much cheaper to get a Netflix account or it's much cheaper to get an Amazon account or Disney Plus. But if you want to watch them all, you now need three or four accounts. So it all kind of adds up to the same anyway. Mm. It's no different. It's the same as what they did with sport. And they, they moved that around yeah. to be on three or four channels. And suddenly you now need multiple subscriptions to watch the same as you wanted to watch in the first place. But that's mm. a whole different subject. Yeah. Do you, how do you think this is going to affect Sky though, right? I mean, Sky traditionally obviously are delivering movies they're streaming them not say so not streaming is one word they are showing them at certain times so it's not on demand as such i mean i've not used sky for for a long time yeah, how, how does that work now sky's already got on demand as well so there's a whole sky box right. sets as well so you get all of the original sky atlantic content if you haven't watched gangs of london yet you need to watch that it's so good um but they they've been very clever so they've seen the world changing around them and they have adapted to it so now integrated within my sky bundle i actually pay for netflix and I get it right. cheaper. So I save £3 a month on what I was paying for Netflix before by buying it directly through Sky. And it also now is, is featured on my Skybox. So when I click on to view movies, it also lists all of the Netflix movies as you know as default on there. Um, and they're starting to do that with more and more. So they're adding in all the other add-ons and apps, the same as they did with Catch-Up TV. So they're, just, they're getting clever with it. It's just depending on who's a competitor to who, I think, more than anything. Virgin how, yeah. jumped on that earlier than Sky did, but Sky are getting around to it all now. Same with Spotify. So how does that work with, do you get 4K Netflix in, and can you yeah. have more than one login? So you, Yeah, I've got you, um, up to six screens at any one time. Six screens, wow. Okay. It's, it makes life a lot easier, and I think that's the whole thing. If anything, If anything makes it easier, I think we all know, and talking about things like Plex, we all know that there are always ways of getting hold of things that aren't always strictly legal, but the, it's always about that ease of use. And for me, when I was younger, it used to be quite a challenge to try and find this film that you wanted to watch and you'd be on Pirate Bay or wherever. Whereas yeah. now I'm at that point of, no, it just needs to be easy and simple to use. And especially for the kids, it needs to be easy and simple to use. So yeah. whoever comes out with the, the easiest way of getting to what you want, you'll tend to use. No, it's perfectly legal for you to copy your own media uh, but you know, if I want to go now look at the things that I bought on on when we had Sky and that I've got to go onto the Sky Go account that we've got still, and it's just a, you know I just want all my stuff in one place, right? If I, if I bought something, I want to own it. <laughs> Maybe that's a bit of an old school view. It's time now for the final section of the show as we each put forward our nominations for Geek of the Week. So who would like to go first this week? Do you know I'm going to go first this week. And I'm going to kind of step up a little bit and uh, change the parameters. And I'm actually going to vote for Spot the Robot Dog. Have you guys heard of this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so Spot the Robot Dog in Singapore basically is uh, running around the parks in Singapore. So it's a bit. It's one of these Boston Dynamics dogs. So it's very eerie looking. It's got four legs. It runs around. He's yellow and black. And he basically uses kind of like ai so he's got cameras on board and he looks to see whether people are properly socially distancing in like parks and open spaces and if not he'll basically tell you to move away move apart <laughs> right so he's running around the park looking for people who are too close to each other and then he's warning them that they're too close to each other so i just thought this was absolutely amazing you know and so well i'm going to say nominate this week spot the dog or spot the robot dog our uh, first non-human <laughs> non-human <laughs> entry so yeah so that's cool if you haven't seen it go and check it out spot the river dog is very very cool so mine would be um there's a lady called nadine hacharam and she founded a website called proximy and it's a it's basically a web it's a web-based dashboard that allows surgeons to 
collaborate remotely using audio, video, augmented reality that we discussed previously. Um, and it, what it allows people to do is that anyone, any expert in a remote location can use the software to guide another surgeon anywhere in the world step-by-step step through an operation. And it was originally set up in 2016 um, when she was contacted by one of her colleagues in Gaza who was dealing with an 18-year-old boy who was suffering after a severe bomb blast had caused an injury to his hand. And she helped him to actually carry out the operation um, and he's, he's ended up now still with the use of his hand, which is crazy. Um, but obviously in the current climate, what it's allowed is using that same technology that's now been rolled out into some NHS hospitals, which means that a lot of surgeons who are currently self-isolating, for example, are still able to help on the front line from their own home. So you definitely wouldn't normally think that surgeons can work from home, but she's enabled that to happen. So they've, they've integrated the technology to ensure that, that they can still guide maybe less um, experienced surgeons through the same operations and, and give them the help in hand throughout. But it just really impressed me. Fantastic stuff, yeah. Um, my nomination isn't quite half so important, but he, he made me smile. Uh, I was watching something with my kids this morning on uh, home learning, and uh, I was watching a programme about uh, marine biology and about the oceans, and they had a presenter, and his name is The Blowfish. His name is actually Tom Hurd, and he, he brands himself as the world's only heavy metal marine biologist. He's a, a, a bass guitar playing, heavy metal loving marine biologist, <laughs> and he was, he was fab. He, he just he communicates really clearly. He's obviously expert and passionate about his subject and he was pitching it. So this was a program for, for kids of the age that I've got. So between sort of eight and 12 and talking about the oceans and talking about different animals. And he was just brilliant. So he's he, he's a larger than life character. He, he makes a big point. No, this is this is rock and roll. This is marine biology. And you just think we need more people like him in the world who just totally love their subject and are quite happy to tell you about it it was great i i watched this half hour program with a big smile on my face uh, the kids loved it because there were lots of, of amazing facts about the oceans absolutely brilliant chap loved him tom heard the bluefish i like that that sounds really cool i bet he's mates with the hairy bikers isn't he is he <laughs> I, I bet he is he's, is he he's english? that kind of guy is he yeah yeah he's, he's an english guy yeah yeah. yeah okay cool yeah my kids like steve Batchel, so does my wife actually oh, i yeah. can see yeah. why but yeah uh, but uh yeah very cool like that so who are we going to have as the winner this week well for, for importance it's got to be your one. doctor robbie it's you know it's, yeah. it's hard to beat for for the world we live in and having a doctors who can do that kind of stuff is just frankly amazing yeah as much as i've I got a soft spot for heavy metal i think this <laughs> enabling surgeons to work from home in this current climate is more important than ever so yeah totally i agree it's definitely the future i mean i guess the other thing you know not just you know can you imagine if somebody's on a transatlantic flight and they need like something and you could actually dial a doctor and couldn't you to perform a procedure and somewhere or even like if they were on the international space station for example and they needed a doctor you know this sort of technology would allow a surgeon to do something wouldn't it this, that, that's so yeah. cool unbelievable it's, it's great as well because it's not just the the audio and the video but you can also it, it overlays um a light like on top of the live video feed you can have drawings annotations you know you, you can see exactly where the surgery is being performed so that again it just provides an extra pair of eyes and it gives that extra little bit of confidence to the person carrying out the procedure as well that they're doing the right thing because they've got somebody else who knows what they're doing in their ear as well so yeah, yeah it's, it definitely was impressive 
So this week's Geek of the Week is Nadine. Fantastic. So that brings us to the end of yet another show. Flying by these weeks. Thank you once again to everybody for listening. Please subscribe and share with your friends. If you've enjoyed this episode, you'll find a full list of the podcast platforms that we are now available on, which has increased dramatically over the past couple of weeks um, on designspark.com forward slash podcasts, where you can also follow the instructions if you've got any questions for us um, or if you'd like to pass on any information. So thank you both for your time again this week, and we'll see you all again next week. No worries. Have a good week. Have a good week, everyone. See you soon.